the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Livestock Podcast. This podcast is designed to give producers up-to-date information on all things relating to livestock. It's been funded jointly through the Farm Advisory Service Animal Welfare Programme and also the Veterinary Advisory Service. So a big thanks to Scottish Government for their support. I'm joined today by Heather Stevenson, who's one of our VIOs in the Dumfries Vet Lab. Um, the sun's shining here in Ayrshire today. Heather, how's it going in Dumfries? It's a beautiful morning here today as well. Excellent. It's um, nice to get away. Um, we've obviously had a lovely summer, but that last couple of weeks has been a wee bit more broken. It's nice to see the sun back and back to um, something more like we're used to. Um, so your your job, Heather, you're a vet a veterinary investigation officer at Dumfries. Um, we know from previous podcasts and things that that involves cutting up a lot of dead things and sampling some some strange things as well, but all the VIOs have have slightly different areas of interest and, and areas of expertise. So other than the routine stuff, what would your kind of areas be that you're uh, most interested in? Dumfries is quite a good area to work in because we do get a nice mix of beef and sheep and dairy things coming through the door which obviously varies a bit by season but we do see other things submitted for post-mortem examination we, we see a fair number of chickens uh, we get wildlife submissions of raptors occasionally things like badgers other species of bird they often come in via police scotland um, but probably my main focus is usually on on sheep. How much of your job? So obviously, there's a lot of it is PM based and um, you know dealing with acute issues. But how much of it is you know wider health planning and and looking you know looking for solutions rather than finding the problem? I mean, we spend a fair amount of time sitting in front of a computer reporting out results from, for example, blood or faecal samples that people have submitted via their vet practices. So they, they could be for investigation of things that are going wrong, such as poor growth rates, or quite a lot of them will be samples for routine monitoring, just to see that everything's okay. So at this time of year, for example, people will blood sample lambs that have been weaned just to check trace element status, to check what their worm burdens might be like just to try and keep things on track to make sure that they're they're not missing something that might impact on on growth rates in, in a few weeks time yeah and and the likes of that so that trace element job we're, we're hearing more and more people getting involved in the trace element discussion really or, or looking at trace elements in in their flocks um is now the time is this post weaning is this the point where we see the we get the best indication of what the trace element status for the farm is, or do you need to do that over a more prolonged period? Is it? Can you have a one-off look? There's there's various times of year when it can be useful to check trace element status in different groups of stock. Weaned lambs is definitely a good starting place 
because it is so important that their, their growth rates are maximised um, so that they can either be sold as, as, as soon as, ca- as you can or um, it's important that animals you're keeping as breeding replacements grow, grow well. Um, some people might want to check trace element status of using tops pre-topping, in, in which case really you want to be at least uh, eight weeks ahead of when the tops go out. Um, people will also sometimes check trace element status, say around about scanning time or six to eight weeks pre-lambing. And on the whole, there's much from a trace element perspective. Does much change throughout the the period? You know, is there a point when a time of year when copper might be low, but it's higher the rest of the year, or are these things fairly set? You know, if your farm is low in copper, it's low in copper throughout mm-hmm. the whole the whole season. Mm-hmm. I'm using copper as an example. It's probably a terrible one. <laughs> <laughs> we tend certainly in the southwest, we tend not to see much copper deficiency. Um, but we do see an awful lot of lambs in the back end with low cobalt status. Um, and when you've got lush autumn grass, then that can have lower trace element status. And the requirements of different groups of animals differ. So, for example, if your farm has an issue with, with low cobalt, then it's more likely to show up in the sheep than it is in cattle um, and any sort of trace element issue is more likely to show up in animals that are, are still growing so your young stock yeah and, and again as you see we're at the point for young stock anyway that were you know weaned lambs onto silage aftermaths or, or, or a good regrowths anyway this is the point where where growth rates should be, will not be at their maximum, but they should be, lambs should be really moving just now mm-hmm. um, with a view to get them off and get them get them away out the road uh, before, th- you know, grass slows down and things start getting tighter again. Yeah. Um, it's interesting just when you were talking about pre-tupping, um, eight weeks pre-tupping for a, a March lamb and that's, that is now, you know, it fairly, fairly creeps up on us that yep. that sheep cycle keeps moving and, and we it now does. are into that, that pre-tupping a pre-tupping phase so there's one area I suppose to discuss and I know you're the 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 guru when it comes to a uh, sheep parasites um what about so we've had a very interesting year from a from a rainfall perspective certainly in this part of the world it's been very dry um where do you think we'll be with fluke I know that's a very difficult question but what what should we be thinking about when it comes to to fluke drenches and and particularly a pre-tup and doze Hmm. i think it's going to be important to take local conditions into account and have a think about whether you saw any issues with liver fluke over the last few years because we've had a wee run of years where the fluke risk has been fairly low as you see, the weather this year was quite unusual. We had very cold April and then we had very dry spells and August has been much more perhaps what we might describe as a as a normal month. But I think across the country as a whole, 
there have been quite marked differences in rainfall from month to month. And in years where you expect a higher risk of liver fluke, you're really looking at what happened sort of late spring, early to mid-summer. And if it's particularly wet that sort of time, um, then that tends to increase the liver fluke risk in autumn. I think this year, again, to come back to, to monitoring, if you've got animals, be it sheep or cattle, in their first grazing season, and you're not sure what whether or not they'll have been exposed to liver fluke, whether or not they'll need treated, then you could do some blood sampling and, and check to see if they've got antibodies, because they'll produce antibodies two to three weeks after they get infected with liver fluke. So you can use them as sentinels, and it might be if you've got animals that are due to go fat quite soon you don't want to be treating them unnecessarily and having a long meat withdrawal where you have to hang on to them longer than you'd intended so that might be worth thinking about this year in some circumstances obviously there will be farms where they will have to they'll know that they are particularly fluky property um, and they'll know from experience that they they will have to to treat um, at certain times. Yeah, I think it's one this year has been noticeably different and certainly the, the years, as you see, Heather, the, the years that we had the biggest fluke issues were, were when we were just getting wet month after wet month after mm-hmm. wet month and, and no no clean break in the cycle at all. And this time, you know, we've had a we've had multiple clean breaks, you know, with a dry spring followed by a hot Certainly, in in most parts of the country, a, a hot and dry summer period as well. So that it's probably, I mean, it's likely that the the situation will be different to normal. Whether whether that means there's there's less fluke, no fluke, but the the that standard pattern of um, wet winter, wet spring has changed. So mm. certainly worth worth having a discussion with vet and and you know, getting your team around the table and, and discussing it now to see, you know, what the best plan might be to take forward. Yeah. Because for me anyway, and, and certainly I, I don't want to stand on your toes here, but the the from a resistance point of view, we've got a, we're getting less and less, well, there's less and less options out there to have good fluke control. And certainly this year's not, we don't want to be wasting product this year just by um, dozing when we don't, you know, unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. It dry, dry and warm doesn't do the mud snail um, any favours and areas of, of mud snail habitat will shrink, will dry up. Um, but there will be fields where there are pockets that it will stay wet most of the time. The mud snails won't disappear if it's very dry, they'll just disappear into the soil and sit it out sit it out um, so probably a good year also to identify fields where there's likely to which are likely to be low risk for liver fluke and again you could use those to graze for example lambs that you're wanting away ah, okay yeah and would you also use that low risk field in a, you know, if things were particularly wet, if we, you know, it will rain again, I'm, I'm confident of that one. Um, would that then, that low risk field, is that somewhere you would try and go to if you were in a particularly wet 
up in time or, or you know, you can use it like that. I suppose it's it's hard to to manage a farm round about those high risk yeah. areas, but worth a try. Um, yeah, some people will have more options than other people. And it's just a case of prioritising um, which groups of stock you might think will benefit most. Yeah, and, and having having a plan and being prepared to change that plan, I suppose, is the uh, the important thing. So, Fluke, yeah, uh, have a look and have some good discussions. What about, so worms as well, pretty, as we discussed, um, keeping those lambs moving is really important. And worms, again, dry period followed by wet. Is there anything of, of note there? Is there anything worth discussing? When you get prolonged dry periods, then the worm larvae can get trapped inside dung as it dries up. Um, and then when the weather swings back to sort of more persistent, steady wet rain, then the larvae can be released. Um, so you can get a flush of larvae out onto the grass and, and a sudden increase in the the challenge to whatever animals are grazing that field. We do tend to if you look at diagnoses of parasitic gastroenteritis, they do tend to be at their highest in the the sort of autumn time. And sort of autumn into early winter, again, is a good time to be taking faecal samples and monitoring worm burdens. Because I think sometimes people forget that you can still get issues with parasitic gastroenteritis in lambs in November, December time. And again, if you're buying in store lambs, then you don't necessarily have any history about if they've been treated with anything. You don't know what worm burdens they might be carrying. Um, So it'd be a good idea to think about quarantine drenching. And and that quarantine drench, is that still, is the advice there to go with, is it a group five wormer, is it a, a Zolvix or something for as a quarantine wormer? Zolvix, yes, is, is a good choice. Um, there are, there's lots of information, if anyone wants more information on the subject, which is, is quite a complicated one, then there's lots of good information on it on the, the SCOPS website, which is, is worth a look and, and obviously have a chat to your vet. Yeah, and and again, that's that's a point we've made in this podcast quite often. Is your vet does want to have this conversation? Your vet doesn't really want to come and uh, deal with the problem. Um, they you know they want to be part of that health planning and the solution, and they, they do want to have that meaningful discussion with a farmer. So don't don't be scared to uh, get in touch and have that a uh, conversation that doesn't involve them coming out to seize a cow or to you know deal with a, an acute problem but that it's, it's, really... it's also good if, if you can find that time to have that conversation rather than trying to have the same trying to have the conversation at the same time as someone's calving a cow because you wouldn't have their full concentration mm-hmm. um and or, or you shouldn't have at least <laughs> <laughs> um, and it just it just makes it uh, much harder for both parties, I think, to get uh, to find out the information that's background information that's needed to have a good proper think about it and 
come up with a plan and best way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's also a thing, Heather, at the moment, just I suppose moving on to, you know, we're heading into breeding season and we're, you know, the cycle moves on. What about things that there's, we're now hearing a lot of people scanning breeding use for for OPA and and other health issues? Is that you know, if you're a commercial flock at the moment, is there anything we should really be targeting disease wise that's going to you know where's the where's the most bang for buck when it comes to a to disease monitoring in sheep flocks? <laughs> In an ideal world, there's a whole raft of diseases you would want to keep out. There's a whole raft of things you could test for. Um, in the real world, then again, I think people have to do a bit of prioritising. Um, I think it's important to know what the health status of your own flock is. Do you know, for example, if you have had OPA or Yoni's disease, for example, already diagnosed in your own flock? And are you doing anything to try and reduce the problem? You need to look to your boundary biosecurity um, because if you're screening things as they come in, if you're screening some of your own animals, but then there's a potential for disease introduction at leaky boundaries, then then that's not ideal. It could be undoing your your good work. Another thing you have to bear in mind is while there are tests and, and good accurate tests for some diseases like Mydivisna, um, tests, blood tests aren't available for things like OPA, which is why people have gone down the, the scanning route. Um, so you've got to take all these things into consideration. Um, and see from your own flock's point of view what um, what would be your your priorities to, to either keep out or if you, if you know it's already there to try and minimise the, the impact it has on the flock. Yeah, and and that um, this time of year when we're seeing huge numbers of breeding sheep moving around the country and uh, you know lots of sheep changing address. The we know, I mean, the sheep system it's stratified. It's you know, it relies on on stock moving down the hill and and you know crossbreeding uh, and moving sheep on. But the closed flock really now is a probably one of the the best opportunities. Maybe not from an economic perspective, but from a health perspe- mm. perspective, you've got so much more control than if you're going to the market and buying. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the, the the timing of of sheep sales in relation to to topping is couldn't be worse because it puts pressure on the time available for quarantine, the time available for monitoring these sheep to check that everything's okay with them, the time available to vaccinate them, the time available to do any blood testing you want to do. Mm-hmm. You're, uh, you're limited, and the pre- the pressure you're, is you on. are limited, and I think it comes back to planning yeah and, and also i mean there's 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 other discussions to be had you know that you can you can have a much more closed flock approach 
while when you're only buying from one person rather than ten. You know, we can there's there's probably ways and means of having a more a you know communication is probably as as important as anything is have the conversation with people build a relationship with somebody and um and basically build the flock you want i suppose yeah i think that is important and i think it's also important to feed back to them if any yeah. problems come to light yeah because they might not know that they might have a condition in their flock that they haven't picked up on mm-hmm and I think if they don't, you know, if that's not, if you're worried about that or it's not well received, you're probably dealing with the wrong person. You know, that that should be a really positive conversation that, you know, you feeding that information back should be of big benefit to their their own flock and their, their trading business as well. But it is quite a difficult, as you say, quite a difficult conversation to have. I'm also joined today by Poppy Freighter, who's one of our sheep specialists who works for the SEC Livestock team. So hello, Poppy. How are things with you? Hello. They're good. Thank you. Good. Now, Poppy, we mentioned, I think, in the last podcast we did together, we were discussing or we mentioned that you're doing a PhD at the moment. And probably at this stage, I would be quite interested just to hear what stage you're at. So you're you're about a year in now. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a year in part-time, so I'm going to just uh, temper expectations a bit by saying it's the equivalent of six months, so not majorly uh, far into it yet. Um, so just to remind you, I'm doing a PhD looking at mob grazing in Scotland to see whether it is beneficial to, um, well, mainly soil carbon sequestration. Yeah, so it's something that's obviously hugely important to farmers at the moment. We're all having that methane argument and discussion you know what how damaging are we to the planet and things and it's, it's great to see that kind of work happening you know in the background good science coming forward because that's certainly something we're we're sadly lacking at the moment that's right and um, there really isn't much evidence at all um which um quantifies whether this form of grazing or grazing different grazing types and their relationship with soil carbon sequestration. We've got some work, um, sort of global level reviews, meta-analyses, where they bring together all the papers looking at grazing intensity um, and looking at what, what that does for soil carbon. And at a very sort of generalised level, higher grazing intensity leads to um, a reduction in soil carbon but um, these aren't differentiated with the, what type of grazing methods people use and I would suggest that makes a difference to the result. Yeah, it's so hard at the moment, isn't it? If you were the, so we're all farming or close to farming and, and certainly have a, we certainly couldn't be described as impartial. You know, we've got our own views on, on what we think is right. But mm-hmm. if you're the consumer at the moment and you look at, all the stuff that's flung at you you know ruminants are terrible grazing is good trees are bad trees are good you know there's so much stuff at the moment that it, hopefully we can get some clarity in the next few while that that does show that what what we know or we think we know is that you know what we're doing in scotland can't be that bad for the planet you know it's yeah. um th- th- i think it's been a bit of an upside of covid as well um that there is a, a sector of the sort of consumers that have a bit more disposable income, I guess, um, and have been a bit more discerning as to 
and how they spend their money on, on meat and looking more locally. You know, we've seen a rise in sort of farm butchers um, and farm shops. Um, they seem to have done quite well. So hopefully mm. that sort of trend stays. Yeah, you know, it's, it's nice to see. And it's also nice It's nice to see that that's dealing with multiple issues and, and it's putting money into the, the very local economy and, and it's, it's really nice to see. I did see an article the other day that um, Brazil, so this is about, you know, looking at cattle, um, Brazil are looking to increase their breeding herd by 24 million huh. uh, just to, to take up the slack from the rest of the developed world yeah. stepping off of livestock production. So it's really, really worrying to hear that you know that we're yeah. dealing with a, a global issue regionally so that's it. Um, yeah there's an opportunity there isn't there that's the reason why the yeah, exactly. prices are pretty good so yeah that is worrying exactly so um who knows but so really the reason we were talking about your phd so obviously phd is a mob grazing of cattle yes um but as a sheep specialist, there's, you know, there's certainly common ground here. So is there anywhere, you know, from a mob stocking point of view, is there a role for that in sheep systems? Um, potentially. Um, the thing is with sheep is, I mean, again, there's not much research, I should say, before I start. Um, but the thing is, you tend to find on longer grass, it's poorer quality. So it's lower in energy. And therefore, you won't expect your lambs to do that well on longer grass. So um, I've seen it practiced um, in sort of low input type, um, you know, native breeds of so things like Shetney, uh, Shetlands. Um, I've seen it practiced in those type of breeds with sheep, but I would suggest they're not getting um, the same sort of performance as some of our, you know, really good grazing um <laughs> I'm being careful my words here, but as, as in terms of a more high performing uh, sheep breeds, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think it probably highlights the difference in efficiency from beef systems to, or, or certainly suckler beef systems, yeah. to sheep systems. So the sheep system, when you can get, you know, lambs doing 400 grams a day, you can get ewes weaning more than their body weight of lamb. Yeah. You know, there's a bit, there's a lot of efficiency built into that system, and efficiency, efficient production, is a climate change target really that's somewhere we need to get to the beef system that suckler cow is a you know fundamentally she's a less efficient converter you know she's she's probably converting to half of her body weight at weaning time that's it yeah but she's good at converting poorer quality forage yes yeah yeah um so it's it's interesting where the you know the role of mob grazing and, and it's certainly become those daily shifts and long grass systems become quite fashionable and it'll be interesting to see how, you know, the fashion has developed, but how will that system move with the times as well? And, and is there a role that we yeah. can't quite see yet for sheep systems, but is there a role coming forward? And I suspect that in soils that are really depleted on carbon, so thinking more um, sort of tired arable soils, I suspect that's where the greatest place is for them. And maybe, maybe um, the carbon sequestration in that scenario um, and the improvements in soil health generally in that scenario, which we know, you know, grazing on these type of soils is good for the soil health, um, is, is an argument for it, even if these lambs might take longer to kill. Yeah. Now, what about, so there's mob grazing and then there's also all grass wintering. Mm-hmm. So 
would that be the same thing or mm. are, are the systems different? Actually quite different. Um, so all grass wintering, it's just rotational grazing through the winter. Um, and so uh, uh, the difference I would like to make first is between mob grazing and sort of standard rotational grazing. And standard rotational grazing or paddock grazing, as some call it, is where the grass kept short and leafy. We're trying not to let it get mature. Whereas under mob grazing, you're letting the you're resting your paddocks for up to three months or even longer. So you're going in every time you come back, you're coming back into like um, a standing hay crop. So it's much more mature. So um, with all grass wintering, you're keeping, you're kind of keeping short leafy grass for the winter period. Um, and you're grazing it say from so a sheep from about three weeks after tupping until th about three weeks pre-lambing so it's around a hundred day period at that time and it's a great way to um reduce your winter feeding bill um because you're moving them through a series of paddocks regularly so you're controlling you're rationing in the grass through the winter um and it's also a nice way to sort of clean out the base of the sward um, in time for, for spring again, so you get a much better quality grass uh, in the springtime. So yeah, old grass wintering is actually quite different. The other type that people might get confused is deferred grazing, which is where the um, often, again with rotational grazing, you might um, the grass might be getting ahead of the animals. Um, and this is where you might leave a paddock and if you wanted to, if you needed silage, you might take a paddock out and cut the silage. But if you didn't need that, you just t uh, take a paddock out and let it grow over the summer. Again, you let it grow quite stemmy, quite long. And then you'll utilise that later on in the year. So maybe with ewes that have been weaned or um, weaned cows. So deferred grazing is quite a nice approach because um, it's kind of a little bit like mob grazing within the year. It's like a short term form I guess and um, so it's quite a nice um, sort of hybridization I guess between sort of standard rotational grazing and mob grazing um, and there's evidence to show from um, New Zealand that deferred grazing um, is really good for the tillering of the pasture it's really good for the water holding capacity in the soil um, and it's good for that natural reseeding effect on the grass so an element of deferred grazing is it's actually quite a nice approach and you could perhaps like um, rotate the area that you deferred graze across across your grazing platform as well to get that benefit. Yeah the, the one thing for, for deferred grazing that I, I'll remember for a long time is uh, you and I went to see Giles Henry mm -hmm. uh, in the early summer and we went to see his, well, the whole place he was a, a great host and we went to his deferred grazing block and it was absolutely buzzing with life and wildflowers and you know skylarks and all manner of species were there and just at that stage probably opened my eyes to the the positive impact of you know very very heavily managed grass systems employing some deferred grazing can have a really positive environmental impact in the bigger I'm sure it has a positive carbon benefit but the bigger environment, you know, that biodiversity. Yeah, which is uh, the other thing we need to be considering. It's the other crisis, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's probably a crisis we as farmers, the carbon crisis is a global issue and we're all involved and we all need to make changes for it. But 
the biodiversity one we can we can make changes and actually see the benefits to it so there's a, i can i can see for me at home i can because i can see the the benefits of it i can there's probably more of an incentive to get more on board with that yeah. but hopefully the two things sit hand in hand together and we can make a difference a big difference to both um that's it you sort of see the increasing pressure on the land don't you and um, with housing development and other other pressures so i do think that role is going to be more on farmers i think farmers are going to be seen more as a sort of solution rather than the problem to these yeah. sort of crises I do, I do hope so. Anyway, now we probably started with a tangent, didn't we? But that's been that's been really good. Um, where we really should be discussing. So we're, we've we've discussed the winter and discussed you know deferred grazing and things. But we're now August September time, probably looking pre-tupping. We've had a very interesting year. Where you know the farmers you're dealing with, what? You know, are there any issues or any any points we want to bring up at this stage? Just uh, as we look towards tupping time and, and basically resetting the clock. Yeah, the first point I would be thinking about. I think I always talk about this actually. Is checking new condition. This is your opportunity to really make a difference to not just your scanning percentage, but also your lambing uh, percentage. And in fact, the number of lambs you sell sell at the end of the year. Um, so. Most flocks or many flocks will be weaned by now. If not, they'll be weaning um, soon. And that period from weaning to tupping time is the easiest opportunity to correct your condition because they're not, we're not requiring them to milk anymore. We're not requiring them to grow a fetus. So this is the best time to invest in getting condition right in the flock and then um, going through them um, from two weeks after weaning time and putting them into groups according to whether they're over a condition score three or just whether they're fat and they can put to the hill. Um, and those are thin to put to good quality grass just to get as many on target as possible. Yeah. And at the moment, you know, we've got another real opportunity, you know, use depending on where you are in the country so there's some places that use will be super fat there's been grass coming out your ears and there's other areas where we've been droughty and we've been you know lacking grass so it's very it's, it's a very um region specific issue but if you're in that position where you've got lean use yeah. i personally i think one of the best options we've got is the store ring because all of those lambs yeah. that you know those smaller lambs that would normally kick about until christmas or after are all competing for grass and if we can get them out of the way and take advantage of record prices in the store yes. ring you know it's a win-win definitely like our focus over up till this point has been on the lambs now it needs to start shifting back to the ewes um, because it is a numbers game and a, a profitability in the flock um and you know, getting those ewes back on track. I mean, Chogask over in, in Ireland quantified on their research farm that each condition score improvement, so moving up, say, from a two to a condition score three at topping time, was worth 10% more lambs reared. Okay, so not just 10% more scanned, but actually saw right the way through pregnancy and right the way through to sale. So that's quite a number. Um, so, yeah. 
I would say that the focus on, on condition is well worth it for your future productivity next year. It's colossal, isn't it? Because if you look at the what effort goes into putting a condition score onto those ewes, so you need to be good to them, you need to give them good grass, but it's quite straightforward. Give them good grass and time to recover. So get your lambs weaned and prioritise lean ewes. 10% saving... If you're an outdoor lammer and trying to save twenty percent, sorry, ten percent of your lambs uh, at lambing time, you know, there's an awful lot of work goes into that. The uh, the, the labour, the, there's low hanging fruit here. The labour required for uh, improving by ten percent at this end of the year is so much less than the labour required at lambing time uh, to do the same. So definitely low hanging fruit and something to, to to keep in mind. What about Poppy? If we've got there are, you know, you can get too much of a good thing. And, and if you've got a lot of fit use, should we be worried about big scans again this year? I know last year there was quite a lot of big scans and in a really difficult winter. Is that something that's likely to come back? Yeah, often we see bigger scans actually in those that are, well, there's two two sort of scenarios. Yeah, if they're too fat, so I'm talking, you know, condition score three, four or above, we can barely feel their ribs then it is worth trying to get them a bit leaner in time for tupping. Um, my focus is always on the leaner ones, you know, the bottom end, but if they are that fat, then I would want to, to kind of bring them down a bit. Um, but often you'll find, actually, um, the flushing effect, where you put them on better quality nutrition in the six weeks prior to tupping time, that effect is actually greater in the leaner use. So those that are really thin... They'll be flushed, and we know flushing has an effect. It promotes ovulation. Um, they'll be flushed, but then also um, the leaner ones are more likely to have multiples, and then you're going to struggle to maintain those multiples through through full term and um, and have good survival in those lambs. Yeah, and an interesting point. Um, what about... Poppy, when it comes to grass, uh, grass growth curve this year, certainly for me at home, has been certainly mm-hmm. far from typical. Um, what what happens in a year? So we've had, had quite a depressed grass growth in July when it was particularly dry. It seems to be that there's been a big bounce at this, you know, in, into August with, with a good bit of rain and, and quite a bit of heat at the moment and grass is performing well. What can we expect from a annual grass growth perspective? Do you think this year will be much less than normal or does it does it balance itself out? Um, I think it has been. I think many have experienced it's been lower than normal. Yeah. Um, obviously, I mean, everybody's had slightly different experiences across the country but when I do talk to people I mean talk people say that the silage yields have been um, a bit lower Um yeah with the way the spring started there was that sort of reduced production at that end of the year the dry spell and um, so and then now we're going to start you know we're heading into autumn and then other things take in effect as well aside from water shortage yeah yeah so Poppy, we know about that there's issues or there's there's certainly evidence of issues with a uh, tupping on red clover and, and fertility issues. What about we're seeing an, a big increase in uptake of herbal lays and, and mixed species swords. Is that something we need to keep in mind? Is that fertility issue or is that purely a red clover problem? It's 
mainly a legume problem. So the issue is uh, phytoestrogens, which are present in legumes. Um, and it's more in red clover, although they say it's a problem in sort of stressed white clover plants as well. So in terms of mixed species swords, I wouldn't see that being a problem. The only thing um, that would be a problem is um, if the if the forage quantity was such that you couldn't see you right through till um, about about a month or so, six weeks after topping starts, because you don't want to change nutrition during that period, because um, that causes stress. So the only thing I would be worried about is if you were sort of introducing them to a mixed species sword and then taking them off onto a regular sword at that time. Um, but then I guess for most people, it's probably going to be grazing off these types of swords as we get further into the winter anyway. Yeah, um, interesting. And I think it's a thing, you know, it's an emerging, uh, the issues with these swords, they seem to be pretty balanced you know there's a lot of diversity in there I suppose that's the whole point in them it's a diverse sword and there should be some balance but certainly all of these new things are worth handling with care and, and just you know don't don't go too extreme with any of it and and you know think about what you're doing when you're using them um the... and on that that's another sort of side of the regenerative grazing movement uh, the mixed species swords are seen as sort of good for biodiversity and it's known that these swords are good for soil carbon as well so aside from making us our farms more resilient to the changing climate you know you've got different roots so therefore it's going to be more tolerant of dry conditions and wet conditions and um, but also it's got other environmental benefits too so i'm a big fan of those yeah no, it's exciting times there anyway. Um, what about, so looking at, we know there's a, a bit of a forage issue in, in some areas, you know, shortage of silage and certainly that's a regional issue, but there's certainly a global issue that feed prices are going to be exp more expensive this year than they were last year. Um, if you're at the moment, you're end of August, beginning of September, you're a fairly conventional producer with you know, maybe a couple of months of, of snacker feeding ewes through the winter. What steps can we take just now to change that system? So we've got the sheep, we've got, you know, we can't make radical system change, but what can we do to reduce the requirement for cake uh, later on in the year? Hmm. Um, I think a lot of the time it's about encouraging farmers to calculate what they do actually need because often when I do this exercise with farmers I can suggest that they cut back their feeding even if they keep the system as it is there are often um, cases to cut that back um, at least so at risk of promoting our services but I, I do encourage getting a ration done to calculate precisely what they need rather than um, going off what the what's suggested perhaps by the merchant um, yeah. And then, yeah, just consider what forages you have available. Um, like I say, deferred grass can see you through part of the winter. Um, probably too late for many with different forage crops and things. But, yeah, just trying to utilise that grass resource that bit more efficiently. Um, yeah. and, and in there we've also, you know, there's 
the supply and demand thing is so important and if demand is high you are going to eat it all quite quick but whatever if we can if if, if supply is going to be tight if you can take steps to reduce demand and there's so many different yeah. options there whether it's cull ewes going away earlier or um you know suckled calves going off farm or whatever it is but if we can reduce that demand that the said, overall feed budget looks better and that said i i really should emphasize the value of resting the grass so yes i'm saying utilize what you can to a point but uh, through you know november december january february if we're grazing your best lambing paddocks or your best turnout paddocks i should say at that time you are affecting your spring grass growth so there's a bit of a balance to be had to try and utilize the resources you've got in the moment to reduce that feed bill um, but also make sure that you've got feed when it matters much more in the spring when you've got lambs on the ground. Yeah, and you you only have to look across a fence to see the to see the impact of that winter grazing. That you know you compare a a dairy farm next door to a sheep farm, and there'll be grass blowing in the wind probably six weeks before a on the dairy farm than there is in the sheep farm just because that grass has had no hasn't had a proper rest and what would your ideal rest period be so if you, those really good your target lambing fields when should those be should they, they be shut up technically shut up yeah so like from november i would say um they need you know 100 or, or more days rest period so often you're talking about making sure that these aren't grazed um for yeah, November or or depending on when your lambing starts, December. Yeah. Yeah. And and you see the the guys who are now moving to, you know, winter feeding and then lambing at grass. You know, you're putting your best quality feed into your um, most valuable group of animals that that lambing you. So you know you can we can winter her fairly well on on reasonable hay or silage. Yeah. Exactly. And then you've got that quality feed in front of them for for when you don't want to be mismothering and don't want to be uh, when you've got plenty of other work on. Yeah, but I think that um, yeah, like hay, average quality hay, can see them through most of the winter, providing you've got enough and um, without need for um, additional concentrates. So uh, you know, from about ten to eight weeks pre lambing time, hay's all they need. In fact, they use you know for most of her pregnancy. She only needs to be on what's called a maintenance ration, you know. So we're only trying to maintain her in the conditions she's in. The fetus growth, um, et cetera, doesn't require that much energy um, right up until you get to those last eight to six weeks pre-lambing time. So hay can be all they need at that time. But again, it comes back to understanding the quality of the forage to determine whether additional energy is required. Yeah, and as you said earlier, Poppy, that the importance of having that relationship with somebody who's not, you know, probably this somebody does sell cake, but it's not their biggest priority. You know, it's having that whole understanding of sheep nutrition rather than pumping cake into them to keep them alive. So, um, yeah, certainly. I mean, we're. I'm a big advocate of being really good to the ewes. <laughs> um, like you said, the, the ewe and the fetus is the most valuable animal on the farm. Um, depending on what else you've got on the farm, I guess. In the flock, I guess. Um, but it can come at a high cost and that can make your business unsustainable. 
Yeah, and I think we saw that across the country this this spring, and and this spring was an exceptional and I would an exceptional period, and probably not the spring to be making radical change off the back of. You know, just because it didn't really work very well this year doesn't mean the whole system is wrong, but it did highlight those more resilient businesses and and those that are very exposed to um, to issues in the spring, and, and I know. Feed, spring feed bills in, in some cases are, are colossal and, and that's somewhere we just we've got no control if you're in that system and you've eaten all your grass you have no control of over when the spring's actually going to come um, but as I say we could we could get very down and depressed looking back at, that, at this spring it's more planning for a normal spring isn't it that's it you just got to remember that it's much cheaper to feed a ewe during pregnancy, like I say, up until that those last, um, I'll say eight weeks to say, so, to keep it simple, but up until that last period, you know, they don't need that much. Um, so it's much cheaper to feed them then than to feed them in lactation where the demand is the highest it is. Um, so thinking of that way, you're feeding one animal at that time rather than two. So it's much cheaper to think in that way and save the grass for a long time. Grass is always the best because especially spring grass, it can be really good quality and competitive with concentrate feeds and it's also a room and healthy feed. So that should always be the focus. What can I do now to make sure I've got the best feed um, for when I need it most? Yeah, and I think, again, this spring highlighted the, the issues with mismothering and problems. You know, logistically, feeding spring grass is so much better. Yeah. Um, that You know, if, if you're a you that's lambed herself away in a corner, you've got a ready ration in front of you and, you know, pretty much those lambs hit the ground running. So, Poppy, what about lambing date? We discuss lambing date a lot and there's a, probably a bit of a trend to move lambing date back a bit so a bit nearer to when when the magic day is when we've got a bit of grass but is there anything you want to uh, mention on lambing date at the moment yeah i think what's pertinent to this year is spring was really challenging and um, it was challenging for the late lammers because they got caught out by the sort of hard weather it was sort of into april early may so there was a few lamb losses there um and then also it was tricky for those lambing sort of in March time because there was just that, like you just said, there just wasn't much grass about in the spring. Um, so I do think it's worth just sort of considering lambing dates. Um, you've got to remember that, well, you know, our climate is changing. Um, we seem to be, my sort of inclination is we're losing spring as a transition. We're moving from winter to summer with very little sort of in between. Um, so I would say just sort of make a mental note in terms of the patterns and whether your lambing system is still working for you on your farm. And I would also say these extreme weather events, that that's sort of another nature of climate change. Um, there's these events that we just simply can't predict. And therefore, regardless of when you lamb, you do really need to think through contingency plans um, for when we do get caught out, they were my, be my two sort of take homes from from this year. Yeah, and I totally would would totally agree with the, the you know the climate change that you, we the plan B has to be quite a robust plan B. You know now who knows what and those those late lammers, you know starting lambing on the twentieth of April, 
those guys had a really tough go this year mm-hmm. and probably got some of the worst weather. And possibly, you know, some of those guys, that the plan B maybe wouldn't have been the most robust plan B because they were, um, you know, you're, you think you're quite insulated because you're a late lammer. Mm-hmm. But as you say, the, the, the winter, summer, spring scenario is getting really quite, quite tricky and, and maybe that's just a few you know it's just a wee rut we're in at the moment but certainly the last few years has been quite a um, that that three month spring period certainly is no longer no longer a thing we've got a extreme weather ex- extreme cold and extreme hot within the same month now which is a something different so developing a plan b and having options for what we what we're going to do where possible, I think, is vital now. I think I would caution against um, planning next year based on this year because the likelihood of this year happening, these years' conditions happening next year are actually quite slim. Um, So I wouldn't go away from this year and think late lambing is a high-risk strategy, it's a no-go, because if you do that, um, I can guarantee that we'll have the best uh, weather going into May and you'll be regretting moving it. But um, what I would say is that those that are late lammers, generally lower costs, yeah, they might have had to put more costs in the system this year, but taking an average, you know, if you take an average of one year and five that you get caught out, those other four years generally make it worthwhile. So that's what we've always got to be thinking. You've got to be thinking as an average sort of perspective rather than taking an extreme year and uh, using that as evidence to suggest that this a system isn't fit for purpose. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that is basically a much more succinct version of what I was trying to say. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> couldn't agree more. Um, the, yeah, and, and those late lammers actually probably, are, you know, we've, they've taken a step back and had a look at where, what their farm resources are, when the right time to normally to lamb is, and they probably have a system in place that it's low cost because it's maximising the the resources available on farm, um, and and certainly the where there's a role for the early lammer, there's a important role in the food supply chain, and and certainly mm-hmm. in in recent years it's been quite a reasonably good paying job as well. It's a very labour and capital intensive job, so it, it's. Um, you know, taking the time to look at that system and make making sure that 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 system is working as best as it can for you. Um, That's right. Because That's of... the right answer. Uh, both yeah. systems can work well and be profitable. The early lama is more sensitive to changing input costs, whereas the late lama is more sensitive to weather. But as you've alluded to, like there's the specialists in their ways, and generally, those that do it well, I tend to have run profitable businesses regardless of whether they're early or late. Yeah, yeah. So the best early lammers would probably make some of the best late lammers. You know, it's a ability and a stocksmanship job as well, isn't it? It's exactly. Attention to detail. Um, it's good. So, no, that's been really useful, Poppy. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, hopefully all of our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have and uh, certainly hope to record another podcast with you in in the weeks and months to come. Thank you.